Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Nicholas Muller, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Along with co-authors, Nick recently published a paper that measures the health damages from air pollution in the United States and looks at how those damages compare with traditional economic metrics like gross domestic product. It's a fascinating piece of work, one that tells us a lot about the harm that some economic activities impose relative to their contribution to the economy. I'll talk with Nick about how these trends have changed over time, which parts of the economy account for the most pollution, and what this all means for environmental policy. Stay with us. Okay, Nick Muller from Carnegie Mellon University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. My pleasure. So we're going to talk uh, today about uh, what's sometimes called green accounting and a recent paper that you've authored uh, with uh, with co-authors in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. But first, uh, I'd like to ask you the same question that we ask everyone who comes on the show, which is how did you get interested in energy and environmental policy issues? Sure. So ultimately, I think it stems to the fact that during my childhood, my family vacationed on the Great Lakes in Canada in the same spot every year. And what that did was to, uh, number one, instill an appreciation of the natural environment, just being outdoors, um, not having you know technology and devices to, to sort of entertain you, um, and also the, the appreciation of, of that particular environment, the Great Lakes, and, and just the open expanse and fishing and stuff like this. But going back to the same place every year um, made it clear that the environment around us was changing, hmm. maybe in terms of water levels at the Great Lakes or uh, changes in industrial pollution levels. Um, and, you know, as a family, we, we would observe these things and talk about these things. And so perhaps that's the that's the root cause of my interest in, in matters environmental. I will say that during graduate school, um, I was trained in economics. And what was really interesting to me were situations in which the assumptions that lead many economists to suggest that markets are an efficient allocation mechanism, uh, when those assumptions break down and we have market failures, and in particular, thinking about market failures uh, related to the environment and natural resources are some of the most interesting problems to work on, some of the most challenging problems, frankly. Um, and that was really inspiring to me as far as a place to direct my energies. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And you know, it's directly relevant to the work that we're going to talk about today is how to account for those market failures um, and sort of think about incorporating them into the measures that we use to evaluate standards of living and economic well-being and things like that. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the background of what's usually called green accounting. Uh, if there's other terms, uh, please you know f- uh, share them with us because this is a relatively new area for me. So when we think about um, economic well-being, the most common metrics that people use, the ones we hear on the radio, are things like you know gross domestic product, gross national product, per capita income, and measures like that. So what's the concept or idea behind green accounting, and why might it be an improvement uh, on these more traditional measures for assessing uh, human well-being? Sure. So gross domestic product and measures like that, uh, when you think about it in the, in the, the broadest perspective, are really an amazing achievement. 
Um, back in the late 20s and early 30s, policymakers in the U.S. were dealing with a, a very large uh, now and, and well-known disruption, that is the Great Depression, and they didn't have, in some sense, data to inform their decision-making in the way that we do today. And, and maybe, maybe uh, some of your listeners might forget that. And so during the early 30s, FDR commissioned economists to try to come up with some systematic measurements that would allow uh, he and his associates to make better decisions. And those metrics ultimately became what we think of now as gross domestic product or GDP. Hmm. Um, and, you know, as long as that metric or that uh, measurement of performance has been around, economists have known that it's incomplete. And it's incomplete in many ways, but the literature has really focused on three areas. The value of leisure time, the value of home production, and environment and natural resources. And so against that backdrop, uh, green accounting really works on obviously the third area. And it's in principle working towards a more comprehensive measure of economic performance or output and looking across time uh, in growth by including the value of, on the one hand, environmental pollution damages that escape the uh, boundaries created by GDP, that is, these damages can extend into non-market impacts. And also, uh, green accounting explores the value of natural resources in place. And by that, I mean when we have standing forests, GDP tends to include the value of those forests when they get used, right. that, that is cut down. And green accounting says, no, wait a minute, there are other services that the forests are actually producing. And so that's a nice way to, to think about the difference in, in perspective uh, between the two. Um, some of the earliest work in green accounting was done in the early 1970s by now two Nobel Prize winning economists, James Tobin and Bill Nordhaus, both at different times at Yale. Um, and that paper uh, really laid out the, the, in some sense, the research agenda. It, it provided estimates of the value of these different components of what was missing. Um, but it was really, in some sense, primitive. Uh, although very insightful, it was primitive in the in the techniques that it had back in 1973 to, to look into some of these issues empirically. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful that that perspective. And um, as you mentioned, you know, some really uh, some of the most accomplished uh, economists have sort of realized and advocated for a long time that incorporating some of these measures uh, is useful uh, and would help us get a better sense of. Um, you know, sort of the, the, the economy writ large and accounting for things that are outside of, of markets. Um, but to my knowledge, uh, green accounting hasn't really been adopted uh, widely across certainly the United States or, or in other nations. Um, can you speak to that issue and why you think it, it might be that we haven't seen uh, these measures incorporated in uh, uh, at large scales? Sure. On the one hand, the, again, the long view, thinking back to that initial work by Nordhaus and Tobin in the 70s, I mean, there were empirical obstacles, um, measurement of some of the values that would be key ingredients in 
an, an extended set of green accounts, uh, measuring those those values is frankly very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, there are actually the uh, approaches that economists use to derive monetary values for things like recreation experiences or aesthetics, um, existence values for different species, and those those remain uh, quite hard. On the other uh, end of the spectrum, in terms of thinking about steps to incorporate green accounting, we have, like the work that, that was just published in the article we're talking about today, we have pollution damage measurements that in addition to the valuation metrics, there are environmental modeling steps that have matured greatly in the interim between 1973 and today. So for instance, if we're thinking about the impacts of pollution emitted by a power plant, we need to know something about where that pollution goes, um, what it might turn into along the way, some of the the chemistry involved, um, who or what is exposed to it, their response in terms of perhaps elevated health risks, and then ultimately, what is the value of those uh, of those impacts? So there are empirical challenges all along the way in the modeling chain, and you know it's it's nice to be able to say here in 2019 we've we've really made great progress in some of those empirical steps that allow us to now have really pretty rigorous estimates of the damage for some of these pollutants. Of course, uncertainties remain as they always will with with any modeling exercise, but just We've, we've made a lot of progress. We're now at a position where we can credibly report to policymakers um, what these values might be and have a serious discussion about extending the existing accounts to include the green accounts. There's another side to this, though, and that is um, vested interests, firms in certain industries, may not want environmental accounts to be officially on the books. Um, for example, think about firms that own or consume large quantities of pollution-intensive fossil fuels. Uh, they want, may not want to have their value added, in a sense, be net of the pollution damage that their productive activities cause, which is not a statement about their production activities not having value, just that the existing accounts mismeasure that net value with uh, when one takes into account pollution damage. So really the obstacles are twofold. There's an historic, practical measurement, empirical set of obstacles, and there's the sort of the status quo way of doing things most certainly makes more sense for folks who might have uh, considerable, um, they might have a lot to lose if we moved towards a, a comprehensive system of green accounts. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's let's get into some of the research now that, that we've already referenced. And so the paper that we're going to talk about, as I mentioned, it's in PNAS, and it's called Fine Particulate Matter Damages and Value Added in the U.S. Economy. And um, it's a paper you've authored with uh, with your colleagues. You can please correct my pronunciation of their names if I if I mess them up. Peter Schofen and Ines Azevedo. Uh, and so you measure something called gross external damages from PM two point five. Uh, regular listeners of the show are know about PM two point five. It's uh, fine particulate matter measured uh, two point five microns or less. So you measure 
this particular kind of pollution and assess the health damages uh, from it across different sectors of the economy. So uh, writ large, how do these gross external damages from PM 2.5 compare with uh, the traditional measure of GDP that we've been talking about? And how has that changed over time? Sure. So in our most recent year, for which we have the data necessary to do the, the modeling exercise that, that was uh, conducted for the paper, that is 2014, we find that the gross external damages amount to about 4 or 5% of GDP, which might not sound like much, but it's a, really a pretty big number. Yeah. Um, that number, the 5% number, is, of course, subject to assumptions that one makes in the models about various uh, various key parameters. You know, how much are damages valued? Um, how sensitive are humans to exposure to PM 2.5? We certainly go to the literature to uh, find appropriate choices for those parameters, but I just note that there are other ways to do this that can can make that 5% number either go up or, or down. Um, generally, as a, as a long-term trend, PM 2.5 and associated damages have fallen in the U.S. precipitously since the 1970s. So we did not estimate that in the, the paper we're discussing. In some of my uh, additional work as, as a sole author, I've found that, that the share of GDP contributed by PM 2.5 damage was much, much higher back in the 70s, I suppose, as, as one, might, uh, one might guess. And not coincidentally... Uh, the Clean Air Act, our primary set of uh, uh, regulatory tools uh, in the U.S., was passed in 1970 and really implemented meaningfully throughout the 70s. So I, I think those two things are certainly related. Mm-hmm. I will note that when I have looked at the pollution monitoring data for years more recent than 2014, now, your, list, your listeners should note that that is not the full modeling exercise that Chofin and Azevedo and I conducted. Uh, it's just looking at the air pollution monitoring network in, in a collection of cities in the U.S. I find a, a, a disturbing trend that the PM 2.5 levels have started to go up after a decade of continuous decline in both 2017 and 2018. So I want your listeners to know that our research finds a, a promising declining trend in damages. Uh, we look forward to doing the damage accounting exercise for more recent years when the emissions data are released. But the, the sort of the most current data we can find suggests air pollution levels have started to tick up for the first time in, in quite a while. Hmm, that's interesting. And just to put some numbers on the, the trends that you identify in the paper, the the gross external damages from PM 2.5 in 2008, you find at uh, about 6% in 2008, about 4.6% in 2011, and then declining to 4.2% in 2014. Yep. Um, but but as, you, as you know, 2014 is the most recent year for which the, the full set of data is available. Um, in the paper, you note that a relatively small number of economic sectors contribute a large share of these damages, uh, these PM 2.5 emissions and the associated damages. Can you talk about those economic sectors and which of them might offer some of the best opportunities for near-term emissions reductions? Sure. We find this uh, this result 
is associated with damages from the agriculture sector, the utilities sector, the manufacturing sector, and transportation. And again, as you stated, those sectors together contribute just 20% of GDP, and they contribute 75% or three-quarters of the, the total air pollution damages that we track. Um, if we were to think about the value that those sectors contribute to economic performance, it's important to note that we, as, as authors of the paper, are not arguing for the elimination of you know, the agriculture sector or utilities or any, anything of the sort. What we're merely doing is saying, here's a way that you can characterize the value added that those sectors contribute to the U.S. economy. And when you build in some of these extra market or non-market impacts, costs, that they confer on the population, their value added really changes appreciably, especially agriculture and utilities. From the point of view of policies um, and additional abatement opportunities, I think the first thing I would want to say is we've made a lot of progress, we the U.S., in improving our air quality over the, what, 40 to 50 years that the Clean Air Act has been in place. And I would argue that it is a very bad idea to relax or not enforce the current standards that we have in place that have been, in some sense, very much hard won. Um, and I'm thinking about things like fuel economy in the vehicle fleet or relaxing some of the ambient standards or not enforcing some of the ambient standards for PM 2.5. I think let's, let's work at least initially on maintaining our current uh, goals as stated uh, statutorily and administratively. Secondly, I would note that the agriculture sector um, is a really interesting place to think about additional abatement because traditionally, at least the way, the way I think about this, traditionally we think about air pollution control from smokestacks and tailpipes. Mm -hmm. And agriculture really offers different opportunities um, in the sense that we might consider changes in the composition of fertilizer, which contributes to emissions of ammonia, which contributes to uh, greatly to the damages that, that we're uh, measuring in that sector. Uh, we also might think about differences in the intensity of fertilizer use based on some of the damages that we're, that we're estimating. And then additionally, animal wastes in the, that, that are uh, produced in the course of producing livestock are also important contributors. And if there are ways that we can manage that waste in a way that's more cognizant of the air pollution impacts from those uh, production activities, that would that would be great. Um, it also speaks in a more broad sense to how we as consumers think about, in some sense, the composition of our menus or the composition of our diet, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we're more aware of these upstream costs associated with production of uh, livestock for food, then we may decide to change our habits or we may need nudges in the form of public policy to help us do that. Yeah, great. That makes sense. And, you know, for listeners who want to get a sense of the different contributions of these different sectors, figure two of the paper offers some really simple but but really clear uh, sort of um, 
measures and, and time trends for agriculture, utilities, manufacturing, and transportation. Um, the most dramatic trend that you see in those figures is the steep reduction in sulfur dioxide emissions from the utility sector. And I, I imagine that's mostly uh, the decline of coal-fired electricity generation in the U.S. Is that right? It is. It's it's not only the decline in just how much electricity we're producing uh, mm-hmm. by burning coal, which is largely about the switch to natural gas, uh, but it's also the fact that the remaining coal-fired power generators that we have are uh, many of them are using flue gas desulfurization or scrubbers, which removes SO2 from the waste stream. Uh, quite a bit to the tune of of 80% or more. And so both of those market and regulatory forces are uh, associated with or or causing that steep decline in SO2 emissions. Yeah, great. And that, of course, you know, again, brings us back to the Clean Air Act and and some the importance of of policy measures to to deal with some of these issues. Yes, it does. So another really interesting sort of feature in the paper is this table uh, that's a few pages in, table one uh, of the paper. And, And what this table does is it shows the ratio of damages uh, to value added across different sectors. So how much um, uh, health damage is associated with with a given sector and how much value added is associated with that sector. So it lets us sort of compare in this simple metric across different parts of the economy. Can you talk a little bit about which economic sectors are most damaging relative to their economic contributions and which are the least damaging and maybe how that's changed over time? Sure. So it, it's an interesting question to ask. That is, what is most damaging? And by that, I mean, how do we assess most damaging? Uh, one perspective might just be, well, you total up all the impacts and you get a, GD, uh, a GED number, a, a total damage number, and then you rank the sectors and say the one at the top is, is the most damaging. Um, as an economist, my view is that's not quite right because we need to remember that these sectors are there for a reason, and that is they're producing something of value, at least in principle, to the economy. And so we need to compare both. That is, we need to compare the external damages, the air pollution impacts from these sectors, and we need to say, okay, but at the same time, what is the the monetary value of the products that those sectors are uh, producing. And that really leads us to this GED to value-added ratio that, that we report in that table. Um, from that perspective, it appears that animal production, that is livestock production, is um, the most damaging relative to value-added in 2014. And it's the case that we estimate that the gross external damages from that sector are greater than their market value added. Now, a cautionary note is that the fact that damages from that sector exceed value added uh, does not suggest or should not suggest that we shut that sector down or uh, ban production of, of this, that, or the other good. What it does tell me is that the regulatory apparatus, insofar as it's targeting air pollution and air pollution damages, is probably not stringent enough for that sector. We need, we need to, to um, bring that ratio down, and this is an indicator of evidence that, that uh, the regulatory 
stringency applied to that sector is is apparently far too lax. Mm-hmm. We also see evidence that uh, sectors or subsectors like waste management are generating lots of damage relative to value added. These are things like incinerators. Uh, but what I would note there is that we need to think carefully about what value added is for the waste management sector, um, because it's my contention that there are probably non-market health sanitation benefits associated with waste management that may not be in value added, which would make value added mismeasured in some sense in a different way. And that might inflate that ratio of damages from air pollution to, to value added for that sector. Right. So yeah, we might, the, the, the measures that we're using here in this work may not account for just the, you know, the health and the health values of, of having clean homes, clean streets, clean, clean uh, parks, and so on. Absolutely. And maybe even water, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly part of it. Um, as far as trends, one of the most stunning, uh, it speaks to the discussion we, we had a moment ago, is the GED to value-added ratio for utilities from electric power generation, rather, from 2008 to 2014. That ratio fell from 1.4 to 0.6 in just a six-year period. Um, and, and, you know, electric power generation is not really a high growth industry, meaning most of the action in the change in that ratio is in a damage is in damage reductions. Um, and that, you know, is not perhaps surprising given what we reported in, uh, the first figure of the paper, but nonetheless, in this framing of this, uh, GED to value added ratio, that's a really, really stark change, um, it's also true that, that other subsectors in that table are not changing very much. And again, that speaks to the difference in both market forces and regulatory stringency targeted at power generation versus, say, agriculture and animal production or uh, rail transport and, and some of the others. Right. In this framing, I, I just conclude by saying that uh, the least damaging sectors are often services, and in particular, in particular, things like financial or insurance services, information technology, um, which is just a, a really interesting contrast in the sense of a long-run comparison of what makes GDP in the U.S. has changed a lot over time, not just within the six-year period. We were a manufacturing-based economy at one point in time. We're now clearly not. And the implications of that in terms of damages and environmental impact and net value added are, are quite clear. Yeah, that makes sense. So last question before we go to our top of the stack segment is when you look across these different economic sectors and their you know health damages as well as their value added, do you see any particularly low-hanging fruit for either the private sector or public policies to address emissions at low cost? So... On the one hand, as a microeconomist, uh, I would just note that typically I don't think about businesses pursuing emission reductions as a primary objective. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to think carefully about there is whether or not there are complementarities between profit maximization as their objective and emission reductions. And frankly, sometimes there are. When, when we have natural gas prices falling relative to, to uh, coal prices, we've seen firms switch or increase the mix of natural gas in their uh, in their production processes, and therefore you have 
this sort of complementarity happening. Right. Plus renewables, uh, you know, also contributing to that. To that. Absolutely. Point. Absolutely. Um, I I would say though that when we think about low hanging fruit or um, continuing to reduce emissions and improve the environment. What I would note is that when EPA historically and other scholars have looked back at the Clean Air Act and assessed benefits of pollution improvements and costs associated with um, investments in pollution control, what they typically find are ratios of benefits to costs in excess of five or even 10 to one. So every dollar that's invested in pollution control, according to those studies, is leading to um, an additional five or ten dollars in human health and environmental improvement. And so what I would note then is continuing to maintain, if not strengthen, standards and to enforce existing standards is not generally acting as a drag on economic performance provided your measure of economic performance is inclusive of both the benefits, which may extend beyond measures like GDP, and the costs. And so, you know, if a 5 to 1 or a 10 to 1 ratio is not low-hanging fruit, I frankly don't know what is. And, and so I would just argue fundamentally what we really need to do is just maintain what we have and then work at the margins on strengthening in areas like, say, agriculture or perhaps uh, some of the other transportation subsectors. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, so Nick, thank you so much again for talking to us about this research. It's really fascinating. I hope people will check out the paper and, um, and get a sense of its findings beyond what we've talked about today, because there's a lot more richness in the paper that, um, that I think people can, can learn from. But let's go now to the last question that we ask everybody, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you'd recommend to our listeners. And um, I'll start us off with, uh, it's not really a reading or anything, but it's, a, it's an eating. So we were talking a moment ago about uh, livestock production, and I decided to uh, contribute um, a little bit to reducing pollution effects of livestock production by going to Burger King and ordering uh, an Impossible Whopper, which is um, their uh, non-meat-based Whopper, and I ate it. And I, I haven't gone to Burger King in quite a while, I'll say, so I don't really have a good baseline for comparison, but it was pretty good. I ate it, and it was salty and... Um, you know, tasted like a burger. Uh, Excellent. So, uh, so it was good. I don't know if I'll do it again, um, but I probably wouldn't go to Burger King again anyway. So, um, anyway, that's my that's my little uh, nugget for today. How about you, Nick? What's at the top of your stack? Um, on a recent vacation, my family and I listened to "The Sixth Extinction" by Elizabeth Colbert, mm. um, and that was a really eye-opening take on human intervention in natural systems going back really thousands of years. Um, and I would encourage your listeners, if they have not read that, to, to pick that one up and, and take a read and, and really hold on because it's it's pretty jarring. Yeah, that sounds great. I saw her give a presentation on that book a couple years ago, and it was, um, yeah, as you say, pretty, pretty stark and, and really compelling. Well, once again, uh, Nick uh, Muller from Carnegie Mellon, thanks so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. 
Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.